again, just want to say, I'm glad you're here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors, and so glad that you're with us here at FBC this morning. Uh, we're going to jump right into the text, so grab a Bible if you have one, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There are some hard copies on the seats in front of you. We're not going to have the words on the screen, so you're just going to need to follow along in a hard copy. So whether that's on your phone or a uh, Bible you have, or you need to use one of the ones on the seats in front of you, that's okay too. It's page 828 if you're using one of these Bibles. All right, 828, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And I'm just going to start by reading for us this morning. Here we go. It says this, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace of to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time together. Thank you. Uh, for the gift of fellowship and gathering as a church family to worship you, to sing to you, pray to you, and to look into your word. And God, I just pray that you would give us open hearts, give us open ears, help us to listen well, to be attentive to what you have for us this morning and the things that you want to teach us. So God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would uh, help us understand it and apply it. Would you encourage us and challenge us and do your work, Lord, in our hearts. We thank you. Give you this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in these opening verses that we read so far, we came across some words or some ideas that we are not always comfortable with. We're not always fans of. Maybe you noticed in the text the word obedient or the word holy. The idea of obedience or holiness, sometimes those words are a little bit scary for us or we don't like them, especially if you're here this morning and maybe you come from a church background or a religious background where you see religion as being overly crusty and legalistic and rigid, and it's about a strict observance of the rules. If that's the case, then maybe you're here today and there's already sirens going off in your mind. Warnings, warning. Here the pastor goes again talking about obedience and keeping the rules and holiness, and I'm not sure if I like those concepts. Commands of the Bible. If that's you this morning, then you are right in a sense that we have uh, commands and rules in the Bible and uh, ways that God has called us to live. And so we're going to talk a lot about that this morning, but that's only part of the story, right? In order to understand the commands, we have to understand the context in which we find the commands. See, verse 13, you notice starts with a very important word, therefore, therefore, which means uh, in common language when uh, we say therefore, it means I'm going to draw a conclusion based on 
things that I have just said, right? That's what therefore means. It's cold outside. Therefore, I'm going to put a jacket on. That's how the word works. And so when you see this word, it means whatever follows is based on what was just said. And so all these commands we see in the text this morning, do this, be this, live like this, are based on and come out of what has already been said in 1 Peter chapter 1. Right, if you've been with us for a few weeks and you know we've been walking through the book of 1 Peter, we're just going to do so from start to finish. And we've called this study, this series, Life in Exile, where Peter is writing to these Christians in the first century who are trying to figure out how to follow Jesus from the fringes, right, where they are exiles. And that's not an issue of geography, but they're exiles in the sense that because of their commitment to follow Jesus— They are now not at home in this world. They feel out of place in their communities, uncomfortable. They don't think the way their neighbors think. They don't live the way the people around them live. And that's difficult and brings all kinds of challenges with it. And so, to start the letter, Peter brings a lot of encouragement to his audience. He wants them to know all these incredible truths of the gospel that can sustain them and anchor their souls while they go through difficulty and exile. And so you saw these past few weeks, talked about you've been chosen by God. You've been given this new birth, this new life in Christ. You have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have this inheritance to look forward to, kept in heaven for you, this future God is shielding you, and on and on. He's saying, look at what God has done for you. Therefore, here is how you should live. Therefore, here are these commands that we see in the text of obedience and holiness. And so it's very important that we get that order correct, because sometimes we get the order backwards. And we say, if we obey and get our act right and be, uh, live obedient lives, then God will bless us and God will give us life and forgive us and do all these great things for us. But you notice that the, the flow of the text is the exact opposite. It says, because God has done all of this already for us, saved us, forgiven us, given us new life, eternal life, an inheritance, a hope in Christ Therefore, because of that, therefore, let's live these new lives. Let's live in in grateful response to what God has done for us. And so that's how we need to understand commands, not just as heavy bricks in our already too heavy backpack that we're carrying with us through life, weighing us down, calling us to earn God's favor. That's not how these work. These are simply ways to live in light of the grace of God and the freedom that God has already given to us in Christ. And so in the text, we see a number of commands. And hey, do this, be like this. And so we're just going to walk through several of them this morning. And the first one we see in verse 13. It says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. And so the first piece of this I want to draw our attention to is he's telling us to be ready. Be prepared. Verse 13, with minds that are alert and fully sober. The Greek there actually more literally is telling us to gird up the loins of your mind. 
did you gird up your loins this morning? Because <laughs> you're supposed to. I mean, the text tells you to. Uh, see, in, in the ancient world, people often wore garments and clothes that were like long robe type things, kind of flowing uh, outfits. And you can imagine in such a robe, you know, you've probably seen pictures of what they wore back then. You can imagine that it's difficult to run around in such an outfit, to maybe if you're in battle, to, to fight people or to jump or to be agile and move, to dance possibly. It's difficult to do those things. And so uh, the idea of girding up your loins was taking those flowing garments and the robes and pulling them up and tucking them into your belt so that your legs were free to move and to run and to jump. And so if men were in battle or if women or, women or men needed to be active for any reason, they would gird up their loins so that they were prepared, so that they at any moment could jump or move or run or uh, any type of active behavior. And so Peter's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Be ready for action mentally. The equivalent we would use today, maybe roll up your sleeves and get ready for work. That you're preparing for what is ahead. See, as a follower of Jesus, he's reminding his audience, you cannot just check out mentally. Your mind has to be engaged and alert and, and sober. And it says, verse 13, that you have to set your hope on the grace to be brought you when Jesus is revealed. And so he's saying, hey, Jesus is going to come again. Jesus is going to return. He's going to restore all things. And so your hope as Christians is not in temporary things, but it's in Jesus. It's in him. And so your mind needs to be prepared to keep your hope there. Because if you're not careful, if you get distracted or lazy, your mind can drift and your heart can start to hope and trust in any number of things. Sometimes we can be like, sponges and just kind of soak up or absorb the values or the value system around us. We swim in the waters of consumerism. And so sometimes what happens is if we get discouraged or we get stressed, we start to put our hope in material things. Maybe it's we go to amazon.com, we order some things, we go to the mall, we engage in a little retail therapy and we look to stuff to give us joy or security or lift our spirits a little bit rather than looking to Jesus, right? Or we are such an entertainment-driven culture that when we get discouraged or stressed, we start to look to Netflix or Hulu and binge watch some TV shows or some movies. And so it's not as much that our hope is set in Christ and having confidence and joy in him, but we're just looking forward to that night on the couch or that day on the couch or that weekend on the couch where we can just veg out and watch something and take our mind off of our issues. It distracts us. Or, again, we swim in the waters of success and achievement, and so sometimes our hope gets placed in performance. And I'm just going to get that promotion. I'm going to get those good grades. I'm going to make that person happy that way. I'm going to get that raise, and then I'm going to be comfortable I'm going to achieve and look a certain way, and that's going to be my source of hope. And so Peter is saying, don't do that. He's saying, prepare your mind to set your hope on Jesus and his return. So your hope and your trust should be in Jesus. And so you need to get ready 
to identify these lies that creep in about what's important and where your hope should be. You have to get ready to, to notice these false things that you start to navigate towards and instead bring your heart and your mind back to Jesus. And it takes work. You have to be ready for it. And so we should think, how do we prepare ourselves? How should we gird up the loins of our minds? If you think about it like anything else that we prepare ourselves for, when we are preparing to run a marathon or get in shape, we exercise regularly, we watch what we eat, we care about our diet, we meal plan, or if you're in school, you're going through some kind of program, you spend hours in a classroom, you spend hours reading outside of class, reading and writing and researching and preparing. And so we, we give ourselves to all these endeavors to prepare ourselves for whatever goals we have. And so, likewise, we should prepare our minds and our hearts for faithfulness to Jesus. Two quick ways we can do that. One, by engaging with the scriptures. Nothing can replace daily Bible reading, filling our minds with the truths of God's word. Here's who God is. Here's what God has done. Here's what God uh, is asking of you and calls you to. Right? If, we, if we don't ever open this up and study it for ourselves, then we're, our minds are not going to be ready to go out into the world and identify, hey, actually, that doesn't line up with God's word. Or God does not actually want me to embrace this or that. And so we need to be, be ready and know God's word. Sometimes that's overwhelming. We just take it a little bit at a time. A few minutes a day, jump into it. And over time, it will shape us and form us. And the second thing we can do is be in community, right? You don't do this alone. You're not supposed to live this Christian life alone. We need one another to speak truth to us, to uh, remind us of these truths of the gospel. That's why we have small groups. That's why we gather here each week to continually appoint one another to who Jesus is and what he has done. And so we need each other's help as we go through this life in exile. So Peter's saying, hey, be ready to set your hope on Jesus. He continues, verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So not only do I want you to be ready, he says, I want you to be holy. And maybe for us, the, the concept of being holy has a negative connotation. We think of people who are holier than thou, or we think of old socks. <laughs> but biblically, holiness is a good thing, and Peter wants us to be holy. And he's actually quoting the Old Testament, where God's people were called to holiness. And they actually had all these laws in the scriptures in Leviticus and elsewhere that would explain to them, here are the things that you should obey and follow because it's going to help you be holy and distinct and, and set apart from the people around you. So there are all kinds of laws about uh, religious rituals, dietary laws, cleanliness laws, uh, laws regarding sexuality and morality and, and across the board. Because God was saying, as my people, I want you to look different than the people around you. And, and not just for the sake of being different, but because I want you to reflect my heart. I want people to be able to see who I am through, through you, through how you treat one another, how you treat them, how you worship me. So be holy, he says, because I am holy. 
And this carries with it the idea of two things, separation and purity. Right? So God is holy in that he's distinct. He's not like anyone or anything else. And he's perfectly pure, righteous, good in every way, not tainted by evil. And so we likewise are called to be separate, distinct from the people around us, and have this moral purity, righteousness, obedience that should characterize our lives. You know, I remember... Uh, after college, I was talking with a friend of mine from college. Actually, friend's a strong word. It was, he was an acquaintance, someone I knew. And he was not a believer, didn't care about Jesus, thought Christianity is a sham in every way. And so we were talking about why I think the Bible's trustworthy and why I think Jesus really was who he said he was and why there's, I think, good, uh, credible reasons to base your life around Jesus. And so we were talking, and he, he was very uh, aggressive, just kind of condescending, pretty rude, chippy, harsh with me, uh, called me some names, talked down to me, just was not a really pleasant person to have this conversation with. And I I realized, though, that in my conversations with him, I looked back on some of the things that I said, and I noticed that I started to be equally chippy, rude, kind of short with him, kind of aggressive, kind of condescending in my own subtle way. And to my shame... I realized that I was acting just like him. I was showing him nothing different. Sure, the content of what we were arguing for was, was very different, but in terms of how I was treating him, how I was communicating the faith, it was just like him. And so that's, an ex- that's a negative example. <laughs> Something that is not an example of, of holiness because I was doing exactly what he was doing. And so as Christians, we're not just called to holiness in terms of what we believe, the content of the message, that's important, but how do we communicate that message with the world? How do we treat people? How do we engage with people who disagree with us? Those of us that are on social media a lot, we really have to think about that, right? How do we communicate the message? It's not enough that the content is right, but also the way we deliver the message should reflect the gospel and should reflect Christ. We should look different. I don't want people to just say, man, those Christians believe some weird things, but hey, they believe some weird things, but do you notice the way they treat people? you notice the grace that they extend to people? you notice the patience they have, the humility? They look a lot like Jesus, compassionate, kind. And so we engage and live holy lives by what we do and how we do it, loving people, forgiving people, sacrificing for the good of other people. But holiness also has to do with what we do not do, right? What we distance ourselves from. And you notice that in the text, verse 14. Don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So saying, hey, you had a way of life before Jesus. And let's be honest, it wasn't always pretty. It actually contained some evil desires. Some of those things that we still wrestle with today, even as Christians were saying, hey, maybe you were, were selfish or you were greedy or, I don't know, cheated on your taxes or were sexually reckless or were violent or proud in a number of ways. And now he's saying, as a follower of Jesus, those things have no place in your new life because that's not the way of God and those things are not the way of Christ. Again, I remember talking with a friend of mine uh, from college, again, 
College Connection, and he was telling me about when his parents became believers. Uh, before Jesus, they were, uh, had no real direction or purpose in life. They were kind of party people and just basically alcoholics. And he said they came to know the Lord, and Jesus radically transformed them. And so they went and right away took all of their alcohol and like hundreds of dollars of alcohol in their home, maybe thousands, and, and just dumped it all out, poured it all out because they're saying we can't slip back into that old way of life. Now, my point in saying that is not that appropriate use of alcohol is wrong. I'm not making that claim that none of us should or can drink. But for them, it was a hindrance. For them, it led to drunkenness. They could not control themselves in this. So they said, we have to get rid of this. Because if we don't, we're going to slip back into this old way of life before Christ, and we're going to walk away from that and walk towards Jesus. And so our lives as we follow Jesus should look different from the way they used to look. And it's not that it's all perfect and wrapped up with a bow on it, but we're, we're progressing towards Christ. We can see this trajectory of holiness in the way that we live. And you know, this can be a difficult topic because sometimes as Christians we want to fit in or we, we want to show people that we're normal, that we're not just a bunch of weirdos. And that can be valuable, right? To, to relate with people, like connect, like show, hey, we're people too, like we get it, life's hard, like we're, we can relate with you. But, but notice in the text, again, there's this, this higher call to, to stand out, not just to blend in, but to stand out in the right ways, right? Not just for the sake of being different, but to reveal what God is like and how Jesus has called us to live. And so we, like the audience of First Peter, should be asking ourselves, well, in, in what way does my life look different than the world around me or my neighbors or maybe my old life? You know, there should be some discernible, some noticeable change. You know, maybe for us, we used to be marked by anger and bitterness, but now in Jesus Christ, we realize how we've been forgiven. And so we're able to let go of bitterness and forgive other people as well. Or maybe our lives were marked by anxiety and, and worry and fear. And in, in Christ, we found this, uh, this hope and this security. And so we don't have to be controlled by fear any longer. We have this peace that we did not know before. Or maybe our lives were marked by selfishness and self-interest. And now in Christ, we've been loved and called to love other people sacrificially, to give of ourselves for the good of others and the good of the world in ways that we could not have before. Again, maybe we're marked, our lives were marked by consumerism and pursuing stuff, but now in Christ we've found this fullness of joy, uh, this uh, satisfaction for our hearts and our souls that comes through Christ. And so we realize it's really not about the stuff and the bigger house and the nicer car. When we live that way, we start to embrace the way of Jesus, people should be able to take a look and say, huh, I don't really know what it is, but, but there's something different about you. Something noticeable. You're, you're, you're playing the game different than I am. That should make an impact. And so Peter's telling the audience in the first century world, hey, be ready in exile and be holy continues in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here 
in reverent fear. So the next B of the text, verse 17, be reverent. He says, live out your time here as foreigners in reverent fear. And there shows that language of exile again. Your time as foreigners, your time as strangers, your time in exile, you're in a strange place. And so as you live life in exile, do so in reverent fear. That's a concept, again, that's kind of hard for us sometimes. Because we talk a lot about the grace of God and the the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the love and the forgiveness of God, that God is near to us and wraps us up in his arms. And those things are all true. Absolutely true. But the scriptures also show us this reality that God is also an impartial judge, a, a righteous ruler of the universe that is worthy of our devotion, our obedience, our worship. And so that is part of what makes God so amazing is that he is at the same time, yes, this loving father that draws near to us and wraps us up in his arms and welcomes us home when we stumble. And he is also this holy, righteous judge and ruler of the universe, perfect in glory and power that deserves our our reverence as we look to him. And so Peter's reminding his audience, live in reverent fear before this God. Remember the glory and the power of God. Because sometimes what we do is we hear the message of salvation or the invitation, and we think sometimes that, oh, well, it, it doesn't really matter how I live. God is gracious, and God forgives. And so God's just going to kind of wink at my shenanigans, doesn't really care about sin as much, and doesn't really care that I'm making a mess of my life or a mess of my family or a mess of his world. He's just like... It's okay. No big deal. But the scriptures show us this other reality that God cares deeply about holiness and righteousness and obedience. And he calls us to follow him. God is still God. God is still the judge of the universe. We don't have to fear damnation as Christians, but we should have this reverence for a holy God. Think about this sometimes like uh, if you have been a teacher or maybe a substitute teacher, or you go to work somewhere, and and your kids are in your class. And maybe someone's been in that situation. Okay, kids are in your class, and they maybe start to get out of line, or start to think that, eh, it's just mom, or it's just dad, so I can kind of do what I want. I can get away with a lot more than if it was just a regular teacher, or a, a teacher that they know and respect. And so I'd imagine in that moment, you would probably have to have a conversation with your child, your son or your daughter, say, hey, I love you. And I'm your mom, and I'm your dad, and I'm also the authority here in this classroom. There are also rules that uh, the whole class has to follow, and just because you're my kid doesn't mean you can just run and do whatever you want. Right? And so it seems like a similar dynamic here where Peter's saying, hey, God is still God and the judge and ruler of the universe. So don't just think of that as a license to sin and do what you want. You're still called to obedience. And he continues in verse 18, another reason for reverence. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope 
are in God. Okay, and so he's calling us to reverence, a reverent fear of the Lord because of who God is, and now he says because of the cost of salvation. You notice that he says, you have been redeemed. And that language comes from bringing people out of slavery. So purchasing a slave's freedom. Saying, you have been redeemed. You've been brought out of slavery into freedom from your old empty way of life. And God did not do that with silver or gold or any kind of money, any kind of payment in that sense. But he did so with the precious blood of Christ the blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect, that is what it cost to purchase your freedom, to bring you out of slavery, to redeem and forgive you. So he's saying, remember the cost. Do you see the cost? This was not cheap. It cost God the life of his son, this eternal son of God who came for us, died for us, rose again. Now in him we can be Forgiven, redeemed from this empty way of life, restored to a relationship with God the Father. And so if you embrace that and then just continue to live how you used to live, as if nothing happened, he's saying, do you see how that that cheapens the message? That shows that the work of Jesus is not that valuable. It's not worth very much. And I remember in college, another college story here today. There were, maybe you've known people like this too, there were friends of mine or peers who didn't take their education very seriously. Okay, they didn't work very hard, didn't go to class as much and do their homework, showed very little initiative in their own development and their own education. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them had uh, their parents paying their way or, or part of their way for their education. And so it seemed like they had this lack of understanding of the cost of their education and what it cost their parents, the sacrifices their parents had to make to put money aside so that they could have this experience. And through the way they were living, they were showing that's not that big of a deal. It wasn't very costly, not worth much. They didn't realize the, the cost of their education, the cost of this experience that they were having. And so... We have to wonder, do we, as Christians, live in such a way that it demonstrates the cost of our salvation, the work of Jesus Christ, and how valuable it is and how it is to be cherished? Could someone look at our lives and say, wow, this, this whole Jesus thing is pretty important to them? It shows in the way they live. So you can tell what's important to someone by what they're willing to sacrifice for. Right? For all of us, if, if you have kids, you love your kids, so you do whatever it takes to do good for them. Provide for them, protect them. You lose all kinds of sleep. You give up all kinds of money, all kinds of time for them because you love them. If you have some kind of hobby or interest that you're passionate about, often those things take money. Maybe it's going to sporting events or concerts or traveling. Those things take time. They take money. Maybe time away from family. They cost you something. But you do it because it matters to you. And so in the same way, do our lives reflect the worth and the value of Jesus? That he is that important to us, that we're willing to, to make 
sacrifices for him, to give up time, to give up money, to give up our comfort so that we can obey Jesus. When we do that, it shows this this reverence we have, this, this gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. And so, Peter says, I want you to be ready. I want you to be holy. I want you to be reverent. There's one more. Verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable Through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So there you have it. Our final B for the morning. Find in verse 22, be loving. So you love one another deeply from the heart. He says, and he goes on, and it's kind of a a densely packed few verses, but he says in verse 23, you notice that the foundation for this love, he says, for you've been born again. You have this, this new life in Christ. It says, through the word of God. That's where he kind of goes on in verse 24 and 25. You notice he's quoting the Old Testament, talking about how God's word endures forever. And so his basic thought, I know it's kind of packed in there, but is God's word, it's eternal. It endures forever. It goes beyond any temporary glory. And God's word and this message of the gospel specifically that you have been given is the foundation of this new life you have. And so... You've been born again to new life, rooted in God's word, and should lead to love for one another. Okay? You should live out this love for one another because you have this new life in Christ that's rooted in God's word. And so this morning, it will simply not do to talk about, hey, be ready and and know your Bible, and hey, be holy and live different than the people around you, and And hey, you need to have a reverence for God. It won't do to simply talk about those things and leave out the call to love one another, which actually really shows whether or not we get the first three. If we really have a reverence for God and a love for him, and we have a readiness and understanding the scriptures, and we're living holy lives, it will lead to lives of love for one another. Because God is love, and he's called us to embody that and show that to the world by how we treat one another. I came across this quote that was from an author and theologian named Paul David Tripp who explains love. He said, love is blank, 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 and he goes on. And I think it's really helpful to read uh, out loud right now because sometimes we hear that call, love people, love one another, and you're like, Yeah, that's good. And yeah, I think I do that. But we need to kind of define it a little bit. Like what exactly would that look like to live out? And so his quote, he said this, Love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of others without impatience or anger. Again, love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of others without impatience or anger goes on, love is actively fighting the temptation to be critical 
and judgmental toward another while looking for ways to encourage and praise. Love is making a daily commitment to resist the needless moments of conflict that come from pointing out and responding to minor offenses. Love is being lovingly honest and humbly approachable in times of misunderstanding. And so I hope those ideas put a little bit of meat on the bones of, of love. Like, what does it look like? It means it's going to be costly. It's going to cost us time and energy. We're going to have to be intentional and thoughtful with how we treat people and engage people and work for the good of other people. And so for, for Peter's audience, he's saying, in exile, you need one another. There's going to be challenges ahead. And so I want you to love one another, to support one another for your own good. And this love that you share for one another is going to communicate something to the world around you. Right? The way you treat each other, the way you love people is possibly the greatest evidence of God's work in your life. You have to live that out. Because think about it. We are this, this group of people that have come together from different backgrounds, different family upbringings, different ethnicities, different home life, different jobs, different passions and uh, pursuits in life. And yet we've been called to be a family, right? To, to love and serve and support one another. We have this bond where the only thing sometimes that we have in common is Jesus Christ. And if it weren't for that, a lot of us probably wouldn't be hanging out. Let's just be honest. <laughs> but in Christ, now we're, we're made family, we're bonded together, and so we, we have that in common, and even if nothing else, that is reason then to do life together, to come alongside one another, support one another, even though we're quite different. And that says something to the world that so often is assembled by affinity and interest, and you spend time with people that are in maybe a similar socioeconomic status, or maybe the people that look like you or think like you. Here in the church of Jesus Christ, we come together from diverse places, but have unity because we share faith in Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we living that out? Can people see that, you know what, I might not understand that millennial or that teenager at all. It might make no sense to me, but I love them. And I'm glad they're here. And I want to get to know them. I want them in this family. You say, I don't understand that old guy or that old couple whose politics are way different from me, but... I love them, and I'm glad they're here. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. See, I don't, I don't know how much I like the person who sings really loud next to me, but I love them, and I'm glad they're here. Or the guy who comes in late, or the gal who shows up way too early and makes things difficult. I, I love them, and I'm glad that they're here. And we're going to find a way to love and serve and encourage one another in Christ. It can be difficult to, to live out. Sometimes we, get, we forget how, how powerful this love and encouragement and support can be. The meaning of, of relationships. I came across this study a few years ago. This might be my favorite research study of all time. Okay, you're going to see why. They found, they were studying health and uh, lifespan, how long people lived and their health habits that led to that. And they found that people who had bad health habits, 
Okay, they were possibly smokers or had poor eating habits, struggled with obesity or bad sleep habits. They didn't exercise. Uh, They had excessive alcohol use. They found that those people, if they had strong relational bonds in their life, lived uh, incredibly longer than people who were health nuts, fitness nuts, ate right, exercised all the time, but were isolated. Okay? Yeah. So people who had bad health habits, can I get an amen? Come on. People who had bad health habits, they didn't eat well, they didn't sleep well, they, they drank too much alcohol, they struggled with obesity, but if they had friends, they lived a lot longer than people who were health nuts, running all the time, exercising, sleeping well, but were more isolated. And so the study concluded, I kid you not, they said, it's better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Preach. Preach. It's better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. Amen. We can live that out today. But think about it. So if if that's true of like relationships in general, how meaningful and impactful they are, then, then how much more as, as Christians should we be able to love and embrace one another and support one another and show that we have the greatest resources to love imaginable, the love of God in our lives, this new life in Jesus Christ from which we then can love one another and show the world by how we treat one another who God is. It's an incredible opportunity for us will glorify God and bless us and bless the world. And so, be holy, excuse me, be ready, be holy, be reverent, and be loving. Those are all of Peter's B's to wrap up chapter one. But as we close our service, I don't want to end on a note of go get to work, just go do this, be like this, just law. I want again come back to how we started the therefore, right? All these truths of the gospel, that we need to remember in order to live these things out because it's the grace of God that enables us to be obedient. It's the grace of God that melts and changes our hearts and allows us to be obedient. It's not just more law that's going to change us. It's gospel. It's grace that enables us to obey. And so we're going to come to the table as a church family, recognize Jesus' death for us, His broken body on the cross, his shed blood on the cross to forgive us for our sins, give us new life, unite us as a family. So I'm going to pray. There's two stations up front. The music's going to play. invite you to come forward. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or not sure where you're at with with Jesus, then I encourage you just to remain seated. Uh, But this is for anyone who trusts in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let me pray. Jesus, we remember you this morning. Let me say thank you for your death for us, your body, your blood, that we remember as we take the elements now. We celebrate you. We pray that from this place of fullness, of of being forgiven, of having a new life, that you'd send us out uh, with willing hearts to love you, to obey, to love others in your name. Amen.